Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. My guest today is Jeffrey Howard. Hi Jeffrey. How are you my friend? I'm doing very well, thanks for coming on. Um, without further ado, what's an idea that's been helping you live well? Yeah, there's a, an idea that I've been, over the last several years, orbiting more and more around and that's this idea of focusing on fruits rather than roots and what i mean by that is trying to rather than get caught up in how well we think our ideas fit into some abstract realm and fit neatly together and trying to get to the bottom of things as you will it's more focusing on if we act as if a certain idea is true What impact does that have in our concrete daily lives? And that's something that I've just grown more and more to really emphasize. And I think it helps out in a lot of different areas of life, whether it's private and personal around emotional, psychological stuff we're facing, or if it's something even like on the social and political level, um, we have a lot, of, a lot of problems in our communities, wherever anyone's at, that are, I think, can... be alleviated and somewhat addressed by focusing on the fruits of certain ideas and less about the, the abstract sort of dogmas and creeds that we tend to really get bogged down in. Mm, great. So my first thought is, um, is there anything that you would share that you used to maybe kind of approach through the prism of ideology or abstract thought? Um, That, that failed you in a way? Like I'm trying to find an area where this approach definitely improved on the, on the maybe default in the West of like thinking about this very cerebrally. Yeah, I, I'm, I would say probably some of the earlier ways in which I applied this, this is probably going back maybe 15 years ago, actually, but before I could articulate in this way, but in more of, I would say in the religious realm, I think, Oftentimes, at least in the United States and predominant mainstream cultures in the United States, there's this focus on orthodoxy, the, having the right beliefs, the right ideas. And mm. there's these culture battles as well as even like ultimately violence that has happened throughout the world because of people wrestling over who has the right ideas about God or gods and the cosmos and all that. And So much of that I found and so much of that is really very speculative thought and I think if we shift that conversation and I found that as I shifted those wrestles because it can be very thorny trying to wrestle through those questions there's so much uncertainty and you want something to grasp onto to shift it toward um, orthopraxy which is having the right practices and so it's really trying to focus on ideas are great and powerful but But what matters maybe a little bit more is what are the consequences of those ideas in the practices that we do in our daily lives? And some of that can come back to what I think are something maybe more universal practices among people where you can say all you want about hope and charity. But if that your ideas about hope and charity are not changing the actual daily practices of maybe helping those in your community or suffering or trying to. Put into practice the idea of love if your ideas aren't changing your habits and practices th- there's a problem there for me and so I found mm. that as I was talking with people with very different religious beliefs on things the focus on okay how about if we look at how we can sort of unify and come together and what are the ideas that are going to then become the practices that help us to live a bit better together rather than trying to decide, Oh, how many angels can fit on the the pin of a needle or something you know these like very abstract the- theological wrestles that people have debated for centuries and my thought I remember having this conversation was just thinking whether or not anyone can come to any meaningful conclusion one whether angels exist but also if there's a certain number that can fit on the pin of a needle is any answers to that going to help me to live better? As a brother, as a son, as a neighbor, as a husband, if not, like maybe it's not really useful to even delve into those questions if they're even worth answering. 
Yeah. The, you know, the philosopher that would come to mind for me, and it's just idiosyncratic in this way, but it's probably um, like Benedict Baruch Spinoza or someone like him, you know, who very, I think at this point, it's almost like naively, I think, try to solve morality the same way you try to solve a math equation. So you have a mm-hmm. few axioms, and from this, it creates a whole metaphysics about how the world might work and do that. And very soon after, while I think it is worthwhile, like reading his thoughts and, and learning from him, but he like very clearly lives in a world of his own, you know, where it's unclear um, what is actually applied or what is even applicable. And yeah, it goes into the metaphysics and this really uh, marked a lot of like the um, early enlightenment thought maybe. Um, so yeah, if we were to take something uh, like charity or something like that, how would you go about actually making it accessible and not bogged down by these theoretical discussions because I take your point and I agree with it that also one action could always be looked at from different perspectives and could be given very different interpretations and this sometimes will make us have a dialogue over this thing right this very it could be a very specific thing and then we could lose sight of what we're trying to achieve. And we could lose sight of the fact that we actually need to act and we'll be talking instead of acting, right? So, I mean, how how would we approach something like that to make it uh, very down-to-earth and um, action-oriented? Something that I've thought a lot about and comes up in a lot of the religious communities I'm familiar with um, Again, having the right beliefs and it connects to charity because my understanding of charity is this idea of trying to overcome differences, to be bonded with one another as we wrestle through this incredibly difficult challenge that is existence. And I know in some faith communities, there's a such a priority on having the right beliefs, such as we, this community, we have the true gospel, the understanding of Christian teachings and the others are heretical or don't have the right ones. We are, we have the truth here. And there's a tendency with that mindset that in some faith communities, they'll basically push out or ostracize those who don't in the, who maybe are in the community, but don't hold that right belief. And what ends up happening is that prioritize the thought is if you prioritize ideas, your ideas about what is truth in a religious sense over your relationships with people, what happens and what often happens is you're more willing to ostracize your family. You're going to say, I'm not going to talk to my siblings anymore. They can't spend time with my children or all these other things. Whereas if you put charity into practice, I think in my understanding, you should acknowledge, okay, yes, I may have ideas of what I think about is ultimate truth or religious truth, et cetera. But if my ideas and my commitment to these abstractions that don't necessarily reflect the nature of truth, if those get in the way of me actually living truth, of loving my family members, of loving my neighbors, of helping them, all of that good charity-related stuff, then maybe that's a problem. Maybe that's an issue of me being committed to abstractions and roots, those are getting at the roots of ideas. Rather, let's focus at the consequences. And if we try and be a little more humble about what we think is the nature of God or and all those difficult questions and settle it down a little bit to earth and focus on what we can do in the here and now, which is to love one another, I think we can make a lot of progress toward a lot of social, personal, emotional problems. Yeah, it's almost uncanny how connected this is to a conversation I recorded yesterday with uh, Stephanie Lip, and which is presumably out right now. Um, so she's talking about integration and about how there could be Venn diagrams that we can come up with that actually allow us to go and 
reside in the overlapping part, even though the beliefs themselves are usually associated with very pol polarized political camps. Okay, so acknowledge the fact that at the same time that Michael Jackson was probably a victim of abuse and a perpetrator of abuse and mm -hmm. dwell in that. Yes, admittedly, probably less comfortable space, but it's the space which allows you to actually reach out to someone and be like, hey, I'm in the same boat as you. You know, it's not I'm not actually saying anything about that that's in opposition to you. But uh, we need dialogue here, right, to move forward. And I really like your emphasis on being in the same boat because, yeah, a sports metaphor would be something like you and I are on the same team trying to beat a blue team and we're red team. And then at some time, at some point, and this doesn't necessarily have to be about uh, strife or anything like that, but that's just what came to my mind, right? You and I at some point just completely forget about the game and here we are like arguing about how you should pass the ball to me or whatever right so it's is it would you frame it as like losing sight of of really something that is uh <laughs> obviously more uh more central to to our well-being and we're being bogged down by discussions um that usually it sounds like that could very well be the source of something like narcissism of small differences, for example. Yeah, I think, I guess I would put it as trying to focus on the things that are the most concrete and the things that can be most shared by other people. So mm. I have plenty of ideas that I hold that are in a pretty abstract realm that may be interesting and inspiring um, and useful in other ways, but by focusing on the practical consequences of the ideas, like we just talked about of the flesh and blood right in front of me and the impact my ideas and habits have on those people. If I focus on that realm, I can, I can see, but other people can see the consequences of my beliefs. And so rather than getting so hung up on the constantly changing ideas I have about the world, I can focus mm -hmm. more on the concrete of what I see and feel in the people I'm around, including the non-human members of my community, the animals and the plants that I exist with. I can touch and feel and see what happens when I walk on a vulnerable plant or when I, you know, pollute or something like that. So it's trying mm. to focus on what we see and feel and experience now, like the pain in someone else's face rather than how neatly, as you talked about, viewing philosophy as sort of a numbers game of trying to fit these mathematical equations all together and then deriving your moral and ethical principles from that, et cetera, et cetera. And th maybe there's an appeal to that, but for me, there's not because it's so much messier in experience and it, we can create these beautiful um, sort of noble frameworks that everything we perceive can kind of fit somewhat neatly into, but that's in an abstract realm. Like what am I doing to help someone else live a little bit better today and tomorrow? And as myself, as someone in the United States and many people in the United States who are prone to being over rational and over intellectualizing, I think it's a challenge an important challenge that we need to come back to the here and now and what people are dealing with. Mm. Yeah, I, I see. I get, I get a sense for it. So, uh, in a sense, there you you invoke two things there, which I'm interested to explore because you invoke the idea of uh, of thinking ahead in in some sense because you are thinking about consequences, and that's thinking like one step ahead. It's like I do this. What if then? Um, at the same time, it's very much about the the present moment and really reacting to people. And uh, I don't, I, I, I think I in, intuitively understand you. Like, I don't think that's a problem. Um, what I'm wondering about is what, what do you think is the, the root cause for the fact that this is not the norm? Um, why, why the tendency to, to get these very deeply cherished beliefs and, um, 
you know, not, not kind of go with the flow. And then even if it's somebody who's from the, like who has a, an opposing view or something, why not adjust and then in the moment be able to prioritize human relationship because it feels better because it's, it's, and all these things. Why, why do you think the, the tendency to, to do things as, as we do them today? I think as we look at history, most of us have this seem to have this deep craving for certainty and mm. we want, whether it's the metaphor of having an anchoring an anchor for your ship or having a, a stable foundation you can build a house upon. Like we want certainty that we can rely upon and the appeal of ideas that we can be certain about connects to that. But the problem with that is that as we hold to these ideas, like there's all these storms bashing against us and we, we hold on to ideas and concepts and abstractions in addition to the concrete things and people we hold on to, but we hold on to those because those give us a sense of safety but the problem is an anchor can not only keep a, a ship moored and safe in harbor, but an anchor can also be used to drag you to the depths of the sea. Like mm. it's this very stationary thing that when circumstances and conditions change, you're stuck. So the idea is rather than having this absolute unchanging idea it's viewing ideas as looking for things that are reliable so you talked about like being a little bit looking at the next steps rather than trying to grasp a hold of an idea and saying i have the certain truth the certainty about the way things are and then universalizing it to everybody and then that's where that conflict happens instead it's trying to say look i'm trying to find ideas that work for me and by doing that, I'm going to listen to other people. Other people have experiences and wisdom they've gained. And what has worked for you might and probably will work for me, but not necessarily. So this idea of fruits over roots, you can spin that metaphor toward the tasting and eating of food and fruits as well. Because there are certain foods that are probably generally pretty nutritious for most people. But there may be something that I have an allergy to that you don't. Or there may be taste preferences. There may be something I find delicious and you find bitter and terrible. And so the idea is I'm going to learn from other people and hopefully find reliable beliefs and ideas and practices and habits that will help me flourish and live well. But I'm not going to hold those as, as absolutes. They could change. They may no longer work at some point. I've had many beliefs, especially in the religious realm, that worked so well for me for so long. And then they eventually started tasting bitter and sour to me and no longer were working. And that caused a dramatic faith crisis for me. And that took years to work through and probably will show up in other ways throughout my life through the years to come. But it's just like, it's acknowledging we're trying to find reliable ideas that help us live well with each other, not hold them absolutely, but reliably and understanding that there are differences. What works for me may not necessarily work for you, but it's not this idea that anything goes and you can just do whatever you want because we are social creatures we live in communities. So it's trying to balance the, what works for me with what works for our community. And that's the fruits over roots. There's a, a biblical verse that talks about by their fruits, you shall know them. And that's, mm -hmm. I think a really beautiful sentiment for ideas is what are the practical consequences of any given idea? And we're not trying mm -hmm. to hold certainty in an existential. If you're want to be existential about your faith, it's, taking the steps into the darkness that are terrifying. You act as if an idea is true and then you see what happens. You're not going to have a certainty that it's going to work or not. Even if you right. have the word of other people, you have to find out what works for you. Yeah. Well, thank you for these metaphors because I love the fruits over um, roots and I really like the anchor metaphor as well. Um, yeah. It's, it's so interesting, you know, and it also, when we, when we prioritize certainty, we mean certainty of a, of a, of a certain kind uh, that's like ideological, right? But in fact, we completely jeopardize our certainty when it comes to human relationships. If we are very much concerned with orthodoxy, correct ideas, then, um, 
basically it's i think most people with from any ideology would say of course i would like to be friends with everyone but you know it would come down to like i don't trust these people their ideas are very mm -hmm. foreign to me and i don't have the right framework to even begin questioning them and it would take um a very diligent and considerate and thoughtful um, and gentle dialogue, right? To actually um, bring these two worldviews into something that's uh, mutually appreciative, and I think that's I think that's one one aspect of what's so hard for us um, because I'm like you, I'm I'm devastated each time that I see this kind of this the dialogue not working, right? And the people getting frustrated and then the people, um, I think maybe being threatened by the fact that uh, somebody's telling them things they don't understand. And I I can uh, relate something like that from my own life. Um, I come from like dialectic, very like logical thought about concepts. Um, if something is good, then it can't be harmful. It must be beneficial then we must check to see what it's actually good for and it must sit with other things so that it doesn't um, it doesn't interfere with other beneficial things, right? This type of thinking. And then my wife is a lot more um, in touch with embodiment, her body. And I think ultimately I'm completely convinced at this point that I gain a lot by asking her and coming to an understanding through her eyes of the world. But even for me, and I consider myself open-minded and it's not easy. It, it's not easy because you have to actually suspend belief about things that you deeply cherish and, and go this extra mile and be like, okay, I'm, I'm right now I'm willing in a very real way possibly be convinced of something which um, maybe from an egotistical point of view or something like that is, is threatening. And uh, I wonder what could be a good mechanism for letting people maybe alleviating some of this fear coming into dialogue with other people. I guess it takes continual practice, right? So, when I, when I think of the ideas that I've cherished through the years and they've evolved, but the ones that I do cherish now, when someone's attacking them, it's threatening because those have some relative certainty for me. And so when they're attacking my ideas, I may get scared because suddenly I have to do all this other work to, oh, I thought I had this sort of figured out, but now I've got to maybe discard that, and that's terrifying. So rather than dealing with that, it's much easier for me to then attack you, right? To to focus on your shortcomings or something in this realm that is mm -hmm. not, oh, my worldview may be inadequate. Um, and so I think the practice comes from trying to hold those ideas a little more softly. Um, I often think of, I think it's the philosopher Whitehead who talks about, we often mistake the map for the territory. And I think, you know, he's talking about we have these ideas about the world and the way it is and how it works, but we should be careful not to mistake those ideas for the world itself or for truth, et cetera. It's trying to acknowledge we're all walking around with maps in our heads or in our hands and we shouldn't get our feathers too ruffled when our maps look a little bit different from one another and try to remember, Oh, Maybe someone's map has some more uses than mine does. And like trying to not let that be a terrifying thing. Cause as you practice this, you realize, Oh, Oh, well, last time I let go of my ideas a little bit and was open to someone else having some more fruitful ideas. It wasn't the mm. end of the world, right? Like it was right. a little scary, but I made it through. Um, and so I think it's just time and time again, the practice you realize, Oh, this it's sort of exposure therapy to, to unsettling our ideas that it's not the scariest thing in the world. Like oftentimes it takes a lot of emotional and psychological work, but it's a muscle you strengthen. 
And if we can strengthen those muscles internally, I think we're going to be less likely to attack one another, to polarize, to dehumanize and go, oh, your ideas are so weird and awful. So are you as a person, you're weird and awful too. You know, it's just, it's trying to change that mindset. We've been such, at least in the United States, the U.S. is just a very, very warlike, violent culture in many ways, which is, you know, heartbreaking. And it's trying to change that mindset, loosening up our commitment to these abstract ideas and instead trying to focus on my commitments to my fellow human beings who I, who I can help or harm every single day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that it's also our culture of how we impart knowledge, um, to young children, right? Basically as we're educated for as long as we have the almost only mode of, of knowledge transfer to be through feeding, uh, dogmata to mm -hmm. young children, right? Rather than developing it more gently through questions and the, and the shared search rather than just being given the, the correct answer, right? Um, it also makes us grow into adults that don't deal well with questioning or with, um, or with doubt. And I think that that creates almost an identity crisis once these are being challenged. Um, and I've talked about this before, but I think it's worth mentioning again that it, it it's actually really strange how we do things in our society where as a child, you're supposed to just, um, unquestionably imbibe things that you're being given, right? It's like drink this, don't worry, just, just drink that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then at age 18 or 21, whatever it is in your country, you're being given this idea or whatever, basically. And whether it's like you can drink now or you can go purchase a gun or whatever, you're an adult now, basically. Okay. Or you're, you're out of college and then the only model for being an adult is not being on the part that's imbibing whatever they're giving. It's the part that gives other, like other people to stuff to imbibe on. It's really weird to become like from a child who shouldn't question things into an adult that only operates with asserting opinions. It's a weird divide. And, um, and I think in a way, when you start, when you're asked questions, really, you are being put in a position where, hey, I'm not this all-knowing thing, right? And it messes up with your identity. It's like, well, okay, what am I now? Am I a child? I'm supposed to know things by now, right? Yeah, I see it a lot with, you talk about, it starts with parenting, and I'm not a parent. I don't have children, but I have been a child, am a child with parents um, <laughs> and a former educator as well. But there's the, you're talking about this idea of children are basically treated as these passive receptacles or vessels that mm -hmm. we just sort of drop or maybe even shove our worldviews and ideas into them that we condition them to think this is how learning and the nature of truth and, and existence, how it works but there are people who push back against that mainstream idea who use the mantra of really treating children as adults. And what they mean by that is not just giving them free range to do all sorts of things that they may not be quite ready for, but it's treating them not as receptacles for ideas, but as another fellow human being who is tasting different fruits. And they may not love the food you're giving them. They may not, it may not taste as sweet to them. And it's about us as parents and adults, members in the community to be okay and acknowledge, okay, sure. We have these foods we've been giving and have received ourselves that have been generally pretty good for most people. However, there could come a point in which these foods actually become no longer nutritious or don't taste good to the next generation or to our own children. So it's trying to be a little bit more open, which is scary because there's so many ideas that I hold to that I feel deeply are just good and wonderful things. Mm -hmm. And they may be for a lot of people. There are people who disagree. And it's trying to remind myself, I'm not going to shove these ideas down the throats of young people. I'm just going to try and give them this 
sort of banquet table and say, try this out. Like a lot of us love this. You may love it too, you know, trying to amplify their free will and their autonomy and their agency. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter um, is four years old and change. And, um, you know, she one day just told me she believes in God. And, you know, generally speaking, I wasn't raised religious. I can see a lot of the, a lot of the good things that religion brought to the world in terms of like organizing a society and so on. But generally I tend to think that today we can evolve, um, evolve away from it and find common ground away from it and live a good life basically without spending too much time thinking about who, who this entity is or whatever. Um, and she's telling me that, and yeah, I can say that I, I had to try, I managed to do it. Thank God um, <laughs> I managed to do it, but eventually, you know, I was just asking her questions about it to like find out where she's coming from and found like a very naive explanation from her, why she thinks God is real, which really was eerily similar to Descartes, which tells something about mm -hmm. his, his reasoning. Um, but in the end, I was happy that I engaged in the dialogue. I didn't give her a different idea. I could ask her some questions about, you know, spaghetti monsters or something just for fun. And, uh, and it did feel good. And it's interesting because if you are asked, you know, what would you like your child to be like? you intuitively would have some pretty good ideas of what you wish for them in life. And it's only until you see them unfold that you realize, oh, they're going to be nothing like it. And, mm -hmm. you know, if I want to have a good relationship with them, I totally have to just go with the flow when it comes to that. And it's a, it's a very humbling experience. Um, what's more, I feel like on other matters, I've benefited a lot from conversing with her and and hearing this um, naive kind of flavor in her answers because they don't always make sense and she gets uh, clearly like her associations can be very kind of bizarre to us. But still, the fact that, you know, she relates something like death with, um, I don't know, uh, something else in nature. It's like it actually gives me interesting ideas and it's it's really beneficial to to treat people even if they're young people with with respect were there any feelings of either threatened or fear or worry as you were talking with your daughter where you're like wait suddenly i have a religious daughter like this is different from what i found to be good and fruitful etc like what, what was some of the psychology for you as you're experiencing that? Or is it different? Cause maybe, maybe you didn't feel intellectually threatened by your child, but it was like, suddenly you have a child who may be going down a path that you may have some disagreement with. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely could see that. And it was, it was a, a great moment for me to examine the way I, and I think most people think, um, I just uh, watched Encanto with her again the other day and a great film, really, I think for adults too. And one of the main uh, points of the film is people tend to assume the worst. And I think it really applies there because I heard it's like, I believe in God. Okay. So what immediately am I thinking about that group of people in the Israeli public, for example, from the most extreme right-wing party that believe in God so fiercely that they would actually like to kick out the Muslims from the Temple Mount, take down the Dome of the Rock, which would cause World War III, and build a third Jewish temple on there, right? Mm -hmm. Th this, this would be like a knee-jerk reaction, because this would actually be bad. But... And then it would take me some creativity and like hold it softly, as you say. Then I'm like, oh, dude, there are plenty, plenty of religious people that are not like that. It's like just mm -hmm. because, you know, so it's I needed to go through a few iterations of my own thoughts about it to really realize that it's not one trait or one belief that is ever going to make the other person an extremist or something like that. And 
if anything, it's going to be my potential extreme reaction. I'm going to clamp hard on this one, right? That would make her a, a strong reactionary. If, if anything, that's, uh, that is what is going to be, uh, make it into a really, a really big thing for her because now she might base her identity on like, I'm so not like my dad, you know, I've come a long mm-hmm. way and I'm a, a complete opposite. Uh, right. Does that make sense? Yeah. You, you, your point of extremism, I think is important because I think about if we hold our ideas a little gently, it's not to say we can't be deeply passionate about them, but it's when we are constantly reminding ourselves and one another, we could be wrong about this certain thing. Things change. Um, if we hold that mindset and try and maintain some intellectual humility, we are far less likely to act extremists, especially in violent ways. I am, well, I can't promise. I would like to think that I would not be violent about any of the ideas I hold. However, I absolutely am going to come to the defense and physically protect the people around me because those are flesh and blood living beings. They are much more important than ideas I have that very well could be wrong. I've been wrong about so many things in my short life already to know that I'm probably wrong about a lot of stuff I hold right now, but I can be a little bit more assured in the concrete things, the relationships with people. And I'm going to hopefully not let the passion I have for certain ideas veer off toward extremism. Um, but I think that's another reason why I love this idea of fruits over roots. Extremism is that extreme form of being obsessive and zealot about, uh, zealous about the roots of our ideas. And as you pointed out, like that extremism in where you live, that could result in some incredibly terrible violence that would spread out to a lot of other places. So again, that's another reason I think we should try and be a little bit more humble about our ideas and be careful to assert, aha, I've laid a hold of truth right here. I hold it in my hands. You have to look at it and you have to bow to the truth that I've been able to lay a hold of. I think it's dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anytime that, uh, people are going to be so invested in something like that. Um, yeah. Are there any, do you have like, we mentioned charity, but if, if we were to give like a very concrete, are are there examples of different populations that according to like maybe your analysis are actually, it sounds like there would be populations that actually agree on things in practice, but because of the roots, would not actually see it, right? And I've been finding this with myself, which is something that is almost like hiding in plain sight. The fact, for example, that there is really literally no reason to, for for example, engage in like a heated debate on Twitter or any other kind of social media. It like never led to any place that is good um, or anything like that. And yet so many people find it irresistible. And I imagine that for a lot of the people who can get into quite intense fighting, um, basically we're saying we're trying to uncover some common humanity, which they would readily agree on if they didn't, um, if they didn't have these beliefs more dearly than they hold their relationships with other people. So is there like, um, a concrete example of something like that you ever got a chance to maybe identify in, in two different populations? Maybe this gets out what you're asking. I think about motivations and motivations are important, but I think some people, some of us who tend to be really into theories and intellectualizing stuff, we push people hard on trying to make sure they're acting according to the values that fit into our theory. So for example, There may be, um, I think of right now, I mean, I spend a lot of time in circles that are interested and practice permaculture 
um, and sustainable farming practices, local food production, trying to produce food locally that is also ecologically leaves a positive impact and helps non-human species as well. And so you could focus on the concrete practice that is doing those things, which may be composting everything you don't end up eating. And it could be having a few animals that you respect and take care of who also help produce manure that you can use to compost to then feed your plants and fruit trees and all that. Like those could be a few concrete practices and that could be, you could have hundreds of people doing that same thing. And that for my view would be fantastic for a variety of reasons, but you can then start moving to the abstract realm. And some of those people may be doing it because they believe that fits into their theory about creating a communistic society, or they could be doing that because that fits into their theory about their understanding of the Christian gospel, or they could be doing that because it fits into their theory about, you know, a whole host of other reasons. And so oftentimes what happens, especially in these abstract realms like Twitter, we get hung up on these theoretical things and trying to say, oh, all this stuff fits in together because it's capitalism or because it's anti-capitalist or all these theoretical things and people, we latch on to our, our favorite jargon words and our theories and we wrestle and we metaphorically hit each other over the head with it and we don't get anywhere. Alternatively, if we focus on those concrete practices a little bit more, it's not to say we can't do theory, but it's just trying to say, let's focus on doing the right practices and trying to build a campaign of people around that. And so it's trying to invite people. It may be something as simple as, hey, I raise chickens and someone comes over to my property where I'm taking care of chickens and they love chickens, so they want to start doing it too. And they do it in a sustainable way. Like that could be um, a good practice. And that's done just by a very concrete thing. It's not like they came over and said, hold up, before I show you my chickens, let me give you these 10 volumes about political theory. And this is why I have these chickens. Like, that's not the way to go. We need to start with the fruits and then we can start working back a little bit to the roots. But again, let's not, if we get too stuck on the roots, so that's where we get tangled and we don't come up to the air to breathe and actually do meaningful work. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it brings to my mind something interesting, which I'm noticing now in Israeli politics. So I'll give very, very, um, superficial synopsis for this but basically right now there's a coalition that's made of the Likud party headed by Bibi Netanyahu and then the most right-wing uh, parties and most sane people are very concerned about this because they are just now or maybe by the time this is out they have reformed the uh, judi the justice system and uh, when I say reform they call it reform we say it's weakening it so basically giving the power of appointing judges to the political parties. Okay. Um, so people are very, very much concerned about this. And the interesting thing is that over there, there is an unholy alliance that's completely thinking about the fruits and the fruits, the practice is weakening the justice system. But from what we know about Bibi and the 50 years that he's been in the limelight talking about things, he he really does not think any of the cuckoo religious stuff of the other parties. Like he's mm -hmm. not that extremist, but he does have, he does happen to be um, already indicted in something. So he is indicted. The trial is on He's prime minister and he doesn't want to go to jail. And his allies for now are people who are in a very real sense would benefit from having a fascist regime. So I'm just like very intrigued that over there in politics that we usually um, kind of, you know, call these people at least like the most <laughs> charitable term we call them is, is cynical, right? Because they would just have these unholy alliances. But it's interesting that over there and, you know, for some people, this is a very uh, great practice that they're doing. Obviously, I'm not going to, to disown that. Uh, but it's interesting that in that environment of politics of achieving their goals, it seems that they are actually the people who are practicing something like what you're, what you've come to, to talk about today. And I just wonder if, if, 
if it's if it's a coincidence or not, or are people in politics very much utilitarian, so they actually tend to think along these lines and kind of latch on to any kind of unholy alliance that works because in a sense they're being very very pragmatic you could yeah you could be talking about what i would maybe without knowing enough or a lot about the situation what could maybe be considered a a shadow side of the concept um i think of on the more positive side um it's interesting how the word pragmatic or pragmatist is used in like political con conversation that's often mm. unfortunately used in this way of someone just doing whatever they can to get to this end end goal they want this sort of end fruit you're talking about and i think that's unfortunate because that's sort of this colloquial um evolution of the term which misses this bigger picture which is not just being pragmatic about trying to get this particular end but you have to think about what were the principles they were acting by to get to that end. And if we, the rest of us, and this is trying to universalize a little bit or generalize, if the rest of us start to adopt some of the principles that that particular politician did to get their end goal, is that going to be good fruits or bad fruits for society? So you have, if someone acts corruptly, that may be effective for them to achieve their end goal, but if that gets spread out to more and more people, and this is where you start to get a little bit sounding like Kant with his moral imperative, but it's like, if we start to generalize that principle out a bit more, we'll find that a lot of bad things happen when corruption is present. And so it's not just this narrow focus on doing whatever you can to achieve. It's trying to focus on if we act as if certain principles are true, whether or not they are ultimately true in some abstract sense is less relevant, it's more of now. Um, that's where we can judge ideas. And we find that when you can build a broad coalition of people toward certain goals, um, you're going to be in a better place than if you're kind of hiding in the shadows or in smoke-filled parlor rooms trying to do devious things that are not particularly popular with the, the general population of your um, political entity. Yeah. No, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I have to admit, it's not like, um, something that was done in a clandestine way. It's, um, a lot of people do support it, which is interesting because now you have a population that's very polarized here over this thing. Um, and yeah, it raises a lot of questions because it, is it even is it is it not inevitable that we're going to run into this place where people are so frustrated with the other side that there is a breakdown of dialogue uh where it gets to the point where you don't feel like you could um coordinate and communicate with the other side so you become less and less uh scrupulous from the perspective of the other side because at some point it's like, listen, they don't understand this needs to be um, done uh, because the people who are now changing the justice system, they would just tell you, um, oh, well, you know, the, the way things were designed up until now, like something was not working right. Uh, you know, in, not in crazy terms. They would just say that. Um, yeah, it's it's it, it it's really tough. Like I've but I've been lately kind of really experiencing this kind of expansion of my ideas and getting into a realm where actually luck plays a much bigger role than we'd like to give and things are maybe a lot less under our control than we'd like them to be. And I don't know, I, I sense that I'm, <laughs> for some reason I've been steering conversations into these like dark places. So I hope, I hope you're not put off by it, but I'm just trying to think about the root causes of, yeah, why, why we're not actually better about doing these things. Some of the conflicts you're talking about, I think of in some political philosophy circles, there's this idea of things being overly politicized to the point where 
in the United States at least, you can kind of guess someone's political affiliation or political leanings based off of the products they use or the TV shows they watch. Like that's mm. how polarized a lot of things are right now. And when things are so polarized and we're not really communing together with people of different backgrounds, political, uh, ethnically, and otherwise, we don't have the relationship so that when we do disagree, we don't have what is considered the social capital necessary to work through the challenges. We don't have enough non-politicized non spaces where we socialize that allow us to build the relationship so that maybe we disagree on something as polarizing as abortion. We can't talk to each other because we don't already have a relationship. So I think some of the, the recommendations I would have and things I'm trying to do more of in my own life is go to physical places where there are people who likely have not only different, but very a variety of views different from my own and building those relationships for some people that's church. Now there's often, there's definitely some churches that are very politicized, but historically there's a lot of reason to believe that there can be um, a wide range of people from socioeconomic backgrounds and political views within reason within certain church congregations, or it could be a social club or a recreational football league or a whole host of things where you're not really there for political reasons. Things happen in a political context, but the idea is trying to take a break from the divisive stuff and building the relationships and solving concrete problems so that when we do inevitably come to disagreements, we can sort of draw on the relationships that we already have. So like it's easier in certain ways for me to disagree with my family members because we've known each other for decades and we have relationships built up. It's a little bit more difficult and I have less reason to maybe tolerate talking with someone with different views because I don't have the relationship with them. And I'm more inclined to discard what they have to say or to even belittle them and dehumanize them because I don't have that relationship. So the idea is, so we build more relationships with people in our community locally where we're face-to-face -face embodied. We are more likely, I think, to focus on the concrete problems be less caught up in abstract entanglements. And then when we do inevitably hit the conflicts, we can hopefully, if not resolve them, at least find a, um, a compromise that is somewhat amenable for all people involved. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with this. I think that there is a lot to be said um, in praise of, even small talk, you know, which is, <laughs> it's not something I do on my podcast, but in real life, I think there's a lot to be said for the, how important it is to establish rapport through, you know, just normal mm -hmm. conversation and not, not just jump into the very um, divisive stuff. And then another thing that I think we're probably lacking in today's society is an opportunity to work on problems together, small problems not huge problems. I think that a lot of what is in the news is, um, you know, the biggest problems, right? It's like climate change, like for Christ's sake, we have to organize something or COVID, you know, the COVID response was so, was so terrible. It was like worldwide. It was so inconsistent. Like within the US, mm -hmm. you had different states trying different things at random. Um, and that's what gets kind of um, just amplified in news. But I've been thinking about this idea of like, what about initiating programs locally of actually presenting people with a problem? And it's, it's a soluble, it's not that hard, but it definitely something that takes more than one person or more than one family, right? And have people work on that problem together just to get a sense again that, hey, I can work out problems with other people because Western lifestyle is so individualized that there's something virtuous about being self-sufficient, right? It's like we know Emerson and Thoreau talking about like mm -hmm. self-sufficiency and self-reliance, and it's been taken kind of ad absurdum where it's shameful to need anybody's help. And I think that um, that's led us to a place that where it's people actually forget and they, in a real sense, the type of problems we're dealing with 
are all framed as problems that you're supposed to solve by yourself, right? Mm -hmm. If you're unhappy, you did something wrong. It's like you didn't work hard enough. You didn't, whatever it is. And I think we need more problems that are local, that are not on a global scale that people are going to work on locally. And I think before you know it, even, it's like, if you said, oh, there's a problem of like, we need to build up this levee because it, it might flood here, right? Before you know it, people have different opinions, even without exchanging opinions, because they've already been given the problem they need to work on. I think just intuitively, it seems like they would be much better at ironing out differences when they do encounter them. They already know they're on the same side. And, you know, that that's a really important thing, knowing that we're in the same boat. Yeah, I think there's this difference between framing climate change in a global sense. Like climate change happens everywhere, is happening everywhere already. But in a sense, it's really a local thing. Like it's something that I experience in my community right here where I go, oh, wow, we had a really mild winter. I wonder how much of that is relating to carbon emissions, a greenhouse gas effect and all that, making it warmer this year than it was the year before, ex previous years, et cetera. And it's something I see in the concrete. And I love you talking about us solving small problems locally together. And, you know, I think of we've got a new park that's coming into our community that is do is aiming to do a lot of things. Part of it is helping with forest restoration, but it's also for recreation, all these other things that there's enough going into that park that most people in the community are absolutely thrilled that it's going in there, but it's also helping to solve a, a host of very locally important problems, protecting our water sources, et cetera. And so you could frame that as a climate change related issue, but oftentimes we don't when we're so focused on something locally. But the reality is if Everyone, everywhere is solving climate change related issues locally. You solve it globally. So um, I think there's probably some some value in the notion of think globally, act locally. Um, but yeah, again, I think I feel some of what you're saying is getting to this concrete, the small things we can do together in person. Yeah. And it also makes me think of how something like giving back to the community could be framed different ways because if you live in a community, usually you're required to pay some sort of tax, right? To make, um, to make, uh, garbage removal, garbage, di uh, disposal, uh, feasible or something like that. You pay it and you call it a tax, right? At the same time, if you live in a community and you do something which is, uh, deemed antisocial by a court, you pay a fine. Right. In both cases, you give money towards the community. Now, think about it when it comes to actually investing your time in something communal. Yes, it does happen that, you know, people are actually working together to build a park, but that's negligible. For the large part, if somebody is actually uh, giving their time to a community, it is because they've been sentenced to like community service. Right. Isn't it crazy now that I think about it, that when people actually give their time to the community, it's it's usually framed as a punishment, which is quite depressing. Yeah, but I, I think also of maybe tying back to some, uh, this is a fleeting thought, but tying back to a previous conversation about religion and religion means a lot of things, includes a lot of different traditions, a lot of different practices. But I think a lot of people who evaluate religion on the practical consequences of it less than like the abstract ideas we can see that a lot of religions have contributed to community efforts that are in the united states most of the universities and many of the hospitals are the results of religious organizations started them because they saw communities that were suffering and so while there's loads of things to be critical of religion broadly or even specific religious traditions, there are things we can look at that are good fruits that have been community efforts to help the poor and downtrodden to address educational mm. needs, to provide healthcare and all these things that otherwise 
have not been happening because people were not willing to coordinate, didn't know how to coordinate, or maybe they lacked the um, the mo- the motivation and the inspiration to do it. That sometimes religion, when properly channeled, can produce some really wonderful fruits. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it's 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 always like complex when you zoom in, and it's always a, a fractal. And with the good, there's bad. But I think absolutely. I mean, the church is undeniably a place where people come and uh, and feel part of a community, and then usually, you know, uh, well, I never went to church, but I think that um, some issues of that community would be raised, like we need a new this, or this family is experiencing hardship, we need a few working hands there. You know, in the case mm-hmm. of the Amish, everybody's building a barn in the house and uh, whatever day it is. Um, yeah, so in that sense, there's there's a lot of good to be said about this kind of, of thing. And um, I don't know, is this, is this um, something you focus on in, in your community or is it something that you find pretty hard uh, to kind of maybe a, a practice that's hard to resuscitate? I think it's very difficult. Uh, it's sort of like trying to swim upstream as a fish. Mm. I'll say I'm, I'm new to my community. I moved here a year ago. We are in the foothills of Southern Appalachia, which is new territory for me. My family's from the Western United States. My wife's family's from around here. So we have some of uh, roots in a different sense, but have some of her family roots here. And when we moved here, one of my primary goals has been, and I'm striving toward being connected and being involved of knowing people. When I go around town, striking up conversations, remembering and asking people for their names and getting involved in community organizations. Um, there's a few organizations around here that I'm really thrilled about what they do. And I try to participate in events and get to know people in their orbit. I'm also a journalist and a writer. And so I also, in the things I write about and the events that happen around here, I try and amplify and give language to some of those ideas of how important it is that we are doing things together in our community, that ultimately we are going to succeed or fail based on whether we have relationships with our local community members, not these abstracted conversations that are happening on the national culture war level. It's like, no, 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 no. We need to focus on what's hitting us right now in our community. And then we can maybe give a little attention to what's happening elsewhere. Like if everyone's taking care of their own households, their own neighborhood, their own community, we're going to be in a, a lot better place. And so it's, it's a value and an aspirational goal I have. Sometimes I do better than, other times, but it's definitely something that I'm trying to uh, maybe following after your wife's footsteps of being a bit more embodied. I tend to be a little bit more of an abstract and intellectualizing type, and that's great for some things and terrible for a lot of other stuff. So it's trying to challenge my natural temperament to be with my community to help out where I can. Yeah. Well, there's this uh, guy in my community that I, I mentioned before, but his name is Musa, and he's one of my heroes, even though he doesn't know it. But he's like the nicest person. Really, I don't know much about his beliefs at all. Well, I don't know anything about his beliefs. But a very long time ago in my community, he started a fruit orchard, and it's basically his life's mission to go work in that fruit orchard for himself. And then whenever there's fruit, he goes around on his little scooter and he just gives people um, prickly pears or jam that he made or whatever. And I think that's like maybe the perfect embodiment of uh, fruits over roots. And um, yeah, maybe maybe this should be made into a, a more tangible project of something as apolitical as growing fruit trees. You know, this is just like pitching an idea right now. But maybe focus oh, on these things that are completely uncontroversial to show people that coordination and 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 yeah and communication and co-creation are completely feasible and we can start with things that don't trigger us and then when the time comes when the time is pressing we would have a much easier time to initiate um yeah co- just cooperation 
Absolutely. Nice. Um, are there any other aspects of the concept that you think would be worth mentioning or exploring? You know, I, I feel like we've uh, dug around in the soil a, a, a fair amount. I think there's enough for people to kind of chew on and, you know, experiment, see, see how it works, see what doesn't work, and hopefully um, can unstiffen some thinking and invite a little bit more um, cooperation. It's life's hard and it's even harder when we hold rigidly to the ideas that come and go in our minds. Right. Especially when we alienate other people, when in fact the only thing that really would save us all is if we had good friends, I'd say at least um, that's what I think. Yeah, Jeffrey, thank you so much. I think in the end, I definitely feel uplifted by this idea that kind of came towards the end. So thank you very much. And I would love to hear from you about um, every project that you are um, connected to online or any personal page that you'd like people to visit, then you're free to share that. Yeah, sure. So there's you know, just a few projects I... I'm very involved in, I'm an editor for an online publication called Eradicus, which we try and do our best to focus on taking a pragmatic approach to ideas. There's a lot of either not so useful or maybe bad fruits in the world. And we're hoping that we can, by focusing on practical consequences of ideas, we can um, encourage some fruitful ideas. And I also host a podcast called Damn the Absolute, which as the name suggests, we try and challenge some absolutist ideas and hopefully offer up some ideas that people in their communities and families and personal lives can uh, put to use. Great. That sounds good. And I'll be waiting for the day when we plant a fruit tree together and dig in the earth. That would be so <laughs> nice. So thanks again so much. Thank you. Thank you.